The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Seems a bit unsettling to say thanks be to God after a reading like that. And yet, that is part of the story. So we've celebrated Advent, and if we've celebrated with any, and Christmas, and if we've celebrated this with any sense of anticipation and joy, the days after Christmas might seem like a complex, anticlimactic blur of emotions. Christmas is a time of, of wonder and amazement as we celebrate the mystery of God with us. It's a, it's a good story a story full of hope. Love was born in Bethlehem, and it's certainly something to sing about. There's angels, there's shepherds, there's wise men, and then there's Joseph and Mary and the child. It's wonderfully good news. But now it's over, and we're back to reality. Decorations will be stored away, lights will be taken down. It's back to work, back to school, back to the old grind. The bright lights of Christmas will be replaced with the colder, darker reality of a January winter in Canada. And the holiday cheer that we might have enjoyed will change back to our usual fare of life. Now, of course, for some of us here this morning, you were perhaps never far away from your usual pain this holiday so that the sought-after cheer and happiness never seemed to materialize. Your normal pain stayed too close. And so for some of us, the post-holiday return to reality is to a reality that we never quite left behind. It is encouraging, then, that the Bible's narrative of the Christmas story is firmly anchored in the concrete reality of life as it is so that it can truly bring us good news. Jesus came in the flesh not to gloss over reality with fantasy, not even the fantasy world of holiday cheer, but to tangibly share in the very things that make up our day-to-day realities in our world. In fact, the gospel stories of Jesus' birth never wander very far from a rather sober and difficult reality. Luke's gospel is the most pastoral and peaceful. And yet even there, the, the, the stark reality is that there was no room for Mary and Joseph and the Christ child in a roof, under a roof. And so Jesus is born in a stable. And as Mary and Joseph bring the infant Jesus for his naming, the prophet Simeon says to them, this child is destined to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The Gospel of John reflects on Jesus coming into the flesh with the same theme of rejection. We are told he came to what was his own and yet his own people did not accept him. Christmas and rejection? Yes, all three Gospels witness to the theme. It is, however, Matthew's account that is the most poignant. 
Matthew expresses the theme of rejection directly with, with a story. Traveling magi welcomed the prospect of a new king and made the long journey to find him. But local King Herod did not share their enthusiasm. He, and he, he responded with a kind of violence that we would rather not think about. A violence that's raw and brutal. I mean, try to imagine the confusion, the events we were read about could have caused Mary and Joseph. Something is terribly wrong with the world in this picture. Mary was told, you will conceive and bear a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. And as she struggles to understand this, the angel explains, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. But now this... A midnight flight, escaping to, to Egypt of all places. I mean, every time they heard the law in the synagogue, Mary and Joseph would have been reminded that Egypt is a place of slavery, oppression, it's bondage. And as they chanted the Psalms in the synagogue, they were reminded that Egypt was the place they had been redeemed from. But now the very Son of God is a displaced person a refugee on the run, running back to an exodus in reverse at God's own command. Now, there, there's nothing romantic about this. You cannot dress this up. There's no nice fireside, no lights and candy canes and chocolate or almond squares with soothing carols in the background. Jesus is on the run. And you can't imagine the turmoil that, 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 that this would have caused Mary and Joseph take the young child and escape, flee, run. It reminds us of another surprising story in Scripture, a story that suggests that all, all things are not the way they should be, and it's the one that we read about in Genesis chapter 22. It's striking that the early church fathers consistently link these two stories. Abraham and Sarah waited so long, 25 years, only to be told by no one less than God himself, now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. This is repulsive. It shouldn't be part of the story. When I was working as a printer some years ago, I was talking with a co-worker who was not a Christian and who began to read the Bible. And I still remember the day she came in and she slammed the door shut and she threw the Bible on the table. She goes, I want nothing to do with your God. I go, Valerie, what's wrong? She goes, any God that makes a father sacrifice his son, I don't want anything to do with him. So I asked her, so did you read to the end of the chapter? She said, no, I couldn't be bothered. Had Abraham misunderstood God? Was Yahweh just like one of those tribal gods after all, ruthless, bloodthirsty? Did he need to be appeased, bribed, so that the cycles of planting and harvest could preserve life, to ensure somehow that the sun would rise in the morning? 
And notice, it's not taking a prize bull or your best camel or the sheep that won first prize in the local fair. It's not even take your servant or, or Ishmael. No, no, it's no your son, your only son, Isaac. To make it worse, he adds, the one that you love. Not get up and put some poison in his food. Not quietly slit his throat while he's asleep in the tent. No, offer him up as a sacrifice. A human sacrifice. I've stood beside ancient ruins of a Mayan pyramid where human sacrifices were made. You could stand right beside the stone. It's a creepy feeling. But there's something else here. I mean, this isn't just a particular man and a particular boy. No, no. Isaac is the son of the promise, a promise that included the blessings to the nations. And if he's killed, the promise dies. There's no blessing. There's no blessing for Abraham. There's no blessing for Isaac. There's no blessing for the nations. There's no blessing for us. So what is God trying to teach in this bizarre turn of events? Well, as we read the story backwards, it's clear that it's a test. Does Abraham love the blessings of God, or does he love the God of the blessings? And it's the perennial question as we begin a new year, will we follow the Lord this coming year if he blesses us? If he doesn't bother us with poor health? If he gives us everything that we need? if he grows your business, if he helps you find that significant other? Are you prepared to trust in the God who demands everything from you? Can you say yes with Mary at great personal cost and public shame? Can you respond to God's demand like Joseph, despite appearances that question everything? Well, like Joseph and Mary... Obediently, Abraham gets up early, and he cuts his own firewood. He loads the donkeys, and then for three days they walk together. It's three days. Every step is a test of faith. And the stress is they walked on together, and finally they arrive at the place, Mount Moriah. And as he leaves his servants with the animals, we get a glimpse of faith. He says, we will worship and we will return. And as they walk, we're allowed to listen in on the conversation. And the Hebrew is quite stark. It's not just father, it's, it's my father. So my father, and it's not just son, it's my son. Then the drama and the tension builds. Isaac, my father, where's the lamb? And it's, it's a question that must have ripped his heart apart. But he responds, the Lord will provide. Now, he had not received details as to how God would work this all out. And we have the benefit of being able to read the whole story, but Abraham didn't have this. He believed. He obeyed. God called him to the extreme, to the limits of life and obedience of love, and he did that. He went all the way. And the test becomes very focused. We'd like to know more about what Isaac thought, but there's nothing about that in the text. Abraham simply ties him up, places him on the altar, he takes the knife, he raises it above his head, and for, for a split second, the sun hits the blade, and it flashes in the hot Middle Eastern sun. And then, just as he's about to bring the knife down, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven again, and it's urgent. Abraham, Abraham, 
stops. Here I am, he replies. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket and he goes over, he untangles it, he takes the ram and he sacrifices it in the place of Isaac, his son. And then Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So he's passed the test. He has shown the sincerity and the extent of his love. This is the heart of the commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. Love to God cannot be less than total. There's no dialogue here. There's no negotiations. It's a complete commitment, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems to contradict everything that Abraham had believed about God until that moment, even when the providences of God all but erase the promises of God, Abraham was called to obedient love that puts God first. Abraham is the father of faith, yes, but he didn't arrive at this destination in one single leap. It was a process, just as our journey of faith is a process where we continue to learn, to trust, and to follow. This isn't blind optimism where we ignore the facts and just hope that everything will pan out at the end. No, no, this is trusting the faithfulness of God even in the dark, believing that in some way he who has begun the good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So because we love him, we give him our all without reserves. Look at them. There they stand. Abraham's arm is around Isaac's shoulder. Isaac's arm around his father's waist. Were there tears, tears of gratitude, tears of relief? Yes, yes, the Lord will provide. It's, it's repeated, and it's repeated in a way that the Bible uses to highlight things. They, they didn't have italics or some marker, but it's said twice, the Lord will provide. In the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Do you know, it would have been more than enough for the story to end here. Wow, I mean, Abraham and Isaac hugging one another, watching the ram as the fire consumes it. But there's even more good news. Because the angel of the Lord speaks from heaven a second time and confirms the promises of the covenant once again, re repeats the same promises that Abraham had, had, had received years before. And that, too, is part of God's provision. The blessing is not just for Abraham, but for the nations. Yes, yes, Yahweh is the God who remembers. He's the covenant God who reminds us of past promises that are equally valid in the present. He is the God who provides. And yet this isn't the end of the story. Centuries later in the fields just outside Bethlehem, an angel speaks from heaven again. For you is born a savior, a king, the Messiah, the Lord. This is God's greatest provision. It's God's own son for you. At first, the shepherds, only the shepherds join in worship. But then the magi come from the east with gifts fit for a king. 
the blessings of the nations are becoming a, a reality. And these strange people, they, they kneel before baby Jesus. You can imagine Joseph's and Mary's wonder and amazement. I mean, drawn by a star in the night sky, the Magi were sent from the ends of the earth with royal gifts for their baby. It's only something that God could orchestrate. Things are looking up. And then, now this. Get up. Take the boy. Flee. Doesn't make any sense. What is a Messiah, a Savior, doing on the run? He's supposed to save us. But instead, baby boys are slaughtered by a paranoid king who wanted to protect his throne, his power. Baby boys are slaughtered to save the Savior. There's no lamb to sacrifice in their place. Something is horribly wrong with this picture. And so certainly, surely, this doesn't fit the story of Scripture. But oh, but it does. This is the real world with all of its ugliness and pain and tears, with its grief and fear, violence, massacre, genocide, are part of the picture of the world into which the Savior is born. In fact, the devastation, the weeping, is precisely why he has come. And so 30 years later, on another hill just outside Jerusalem, traditionally thought to be Mount Moriah, precisely at the hour of the evening sacrifice, the Lamb of God will die on a Roman cross. And his crime will be published in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Though he is truly innocent, there is no one to take his place. He dies, the just for the unjust, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. And from that cross, Jesus will not only cry, Father, forgive them, because they don't understand what they're doing, nor will he stay with the question, My God, my God, why? Why have you left me here all alone? But he will shout, it is finished. And the curtain of the temple will be torn, ripped from top to bottom, opening the door of access to God himself. No more sacrifice will be required, human or animal. And that's good news. It's finished, accomplished. This is God's great provision. It's, it's, it's great news. Don't you agree? And it would be more than enough if it ended here, but it gets better. Can you imagine? It actually gets better. Writing to the Roman church, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, Paul asks in chapter 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, this is the wonder of Emmanuel. God with us, God for us, not God against us. But then Paul goes on with words that are strikingly similar to the words we find in Genesis chapter 22. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him 
graciously give us all things. He did not spare his own son, his only son, the son he loved with an eternal love, this Jesus. He did not spare this son, but he delivered him up for us all. Shall not he with him also give us freely all things? Do you follow the divine logic here? God has given you the very best, that which cost him the most, which cost him everything. Anything else is easy by comparison. It's like a world-class brain surgeon who can do the most intricate surgery. Don't you think that she can also put a few stitches on a superficial cut on your lip? I mean, she's overqualified to the extreme. So yes, Christmas, another Christmas is over. We're reminded that the infant Messiah is forced into exile in a hostile world. That children are mercilessly killed by Herod that Jesus is exiled, that he and his parents are on the run, hunted by a tyrant who wants to protect his throne, his interests, his power. That is the real world. Not some beautiful Christmas card scene to put on your mantelpiece. And so for refugees, a refugee savior is good news. For those suffering from rejection, a rejected savior is good news. For the homeless, a homeless Savior is good news. For the poor, a poor Savior is good news. For those living in the tense paradox between the bright and clear promises and the dark, confusing providence, a threatened, vulnerable Savior is good news. And so the question comes to us as church this morning, how can we as a church be good news to refugees, to the rejected, to the homeless, to the poor? How, how can we as, as church express and embody hope to those living in the tense paradox between the bright, clear promises of God and his dark, confusing providences? And so it, it, it's a call to work towards a world that, that is just, where there would be no more room for refugees, where there is no homelessness or poor. It's the call to, to work towards a world that's shaped by the vision of the kingdom of God and its justice. And yes, these are problems that, that are big, that overwhelm us, but we're invited to tear off a piece, a corner, of the darkness. And so we return to the real world. And the challenges of, of the day can, can sometimes overwhelm us. I mean, we've we prayed about it today. The, the violence in the world, the, the threat of war, the climate, the fires, all of these things that can completely overwhelm us, but then closer to home. This could be loneliness because somebody we love is no longer with us. Or it could be returning to caring for a sick child for whom the future does not look bright. Or caring for an aging parent who's, who we see growing weaker every day. Or it could be that a litany of doctor's appointments awaits us. Or we return to the brokenness of family strife or, or financial burdens. Or work that so often seems meaningless, so insignificant, at least that's the lie that we've believed. 
There can be uncertainty with regards to the future. Will we find a job this year? Or we return to the struggle against sin, addictions that never give up, that hound us and cause us so much despair. Or maybe we're just ordinary people doing ordinary things, and it's the endless cycle of trying to balance work with paying bills, with taking the kids to school, with homework, and then trying to figure out how, how to make the church and community fit in all of this as well. So after a brief reprieve, we descend into the post-Christmas reality that awaits us. And so on the threshold of this new year, we are invited to listen to the God whose message is a real gospel for a real world, even though his providences sometimes seem to contradict his promises and yet who inevitably shows up in remarkable ways that assures us that, yes, there is a way forward. And this way does not turn a blind eye to the violence or the challenges. No, it faces them. And God reminds us that he refuses to resort to the old human way of doing things, which is fight force with force. No, God will not stop the madness by being caught up in the same madness. God will give us a totally new way to live, and it's the way of love love. God came into the midst of the madness and through a suffering love has begun to pioneer a new way for us. And Jesus is the pioneer of that perfect way, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of the kingdom, the way of downward mobility, the way of love. God has already shown you how much he loves you by giving you his very best, his only son, the son whom he loves but he promises to do so much more, to freely, graciously give you everything that you need to live with him and for him, for his grace and for his glory. You know, that promise still stands. The covenant God of Abraham swears with an oath, an oath that was sealed by the blood of his son and that was confirmed by the waters of baptism that he will truly bless that he will provide and care for you during this coming year. He has kept you through the past year and all the years before that. He will not fail you now. You can trust him. So entrust yourself to him. If you have him, you have everything that you really need because he already loves you. And so you'll find joy in the journey and grace to meet every trial and peace to dry the tears and hope that shines brighter every day. Because love, joy, peace, and hope have a name. And that name is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is God's provision for the real world. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we begin this new year, we thank you for the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. To know that God with us is more than a nice slogan, that Jesus is the real gospel for the real world, for our world. You know every heart, every home, every question, every need. We truly believe that you are enough for us. And so we pray that you, have do, you would do as you have promised, that you would provide for us, 
and we will give you all the glory and the praise. In Christ's name.